Well, good morning, everyone. I want to greet you this morning and again welcome you if you're visiting here for the first time. I want to invite you, um, before we pray, you can go ahead and just turn there. We'll be in Exodus chapter 4 this morning. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. It is a good thing for us to be gathered here today, isn't it? To be physically present together with our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. I was reminded this week of something that the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. It is very simply the desire of faithful Christians, if at all possible, to be together. It brings joy. Satan opposes the gathering of Christians. He doesn't want believers to be face to face. Because it's in the gathering of his people that God dwells. It's in the gathered church that God works. He uses the simple means, the unimpressive means of preaching and worship and fellowship to strengthen our faith and to unite us in his gospel. Now, I'm encouraged and I'm thankful that God also works outside the public gathering of the church. God is always active. He is always Lord. He is always at work. But on the Lord's day, when we are physically together, there is something special and significant that happens. Because this is a tangible, visible, physical picture of who and what we are. We are the body of Christ, joined together. We are the family of God. We are a living temple made up of stones joined together, each and every one of us who know Christ. And the public gathering of Christians is really a preview of heaven, isn't it? People from every walk of life, from every background, from different families and places gathered together because we worship Jesus, because we've received his saving grace. That's what church is. It's not a tradition. It's not just entertainment. This is a key aspect of our spiritual life. And listen, there is no substitute for it. So With that in mind, I want to ask you to join me in prayer to thank God for the joyful privilege of gathering today as the church, and let's let's ask God to do what he promised, to be with us and to work in us for his glory. Please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of gathering today. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us in the person of your Son, that many who are in our midst today know you and are alive in Christ and therefore join together within your family. We pray, God, that you would do what you promised, that you would meet us here, that you would speak powerfully through your word, that you would deepen our faith, strengthen our fellowship, and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Be magnified today, Lord Jesus, in our midst. We pray this in your name. Amen. Exodus chapter 4. If you're visiting or if you're new Typically what we do is preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And what that means is sometimes we come to passages that maybe are a little tricky or challenging, and today is one of those. But I want to give you the background for this text. The background for this text, if you're going to understand it and interpret it rightly and then apply it appropriately, the background is actually in Genesis. There was a promise that God made to a man named Abraham. 
We often refer to this promise as the Abrahamic covenant. That promise included different blessings like land and offspring and a great name. Listen to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where God first announces this promise to Abraham. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These initial promises, which would later be formalized and repeated as God would speak to Abraham on other occasions, they are what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. That's kind of a theological word, maybe a a term you don't use often, but it's important. So when I refer today to the covenant or to even the promise, I want you to think of that. I want you to consider that this is something God has guaranteed with an oath. He swore by himself that he would perform this, that he would make this nation great, that he would give them this land, that he would bless Abraham, his descendants, and through them bring blessing to all the families of the earth. You might say, well, what does God's promise to Abraham have to do with me? I'm not Abraham, and I don't own any land. I just you know, rent an apartment in Lawrence or something like that. Well, for believers today, we share in these promises through Christ. Although most of us are Gentiles, we're not Jews by birth, through faith in Christ, Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham, the seed promised, the blessings of salvation come to us. So we can learn from and draw from these stories that revolve around these covenant promises because we see what place these promises played in the lives of God's people. We see how it affected them, how it, how it directed their steps, how they responded to those promises, whether positively or negatively. And we can draw from that implications for how we ought to live today as people who have also benefited from what Second Peter 1 calls God's very great and precious promises. So keep that in mind. That's sort of the background for, for really the whole book of Exodus is God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So to jump back into Exodus 4 here, we're in the second half of the chapter. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 31. If you remember last week, we saw that Moses has been on the mountain with God. He sees this bush that is burning but not consumed, and the voice of God himself speaks from the flame. Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground, and my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. And he tells Moses not only his name, but he tells Moses his purpose and his plan. I am going to now deliver my people out of slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to use you to do it. He commissioned Moses to go back to Egypt. Moses had fled from Egypt 40 years earlier. He had tried to help his countrymen. He had killed an Egyptian and attempted to be a peacemaker, and the Egyptians now wanted him dead, and the Israelites wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't care. They said, who made you a prince over us? We don't need your help. So Moses had fled. He had crossed the desert and gone to the land of Midian, and for 40 years he's been a shepherd working for his father-in-law there in the desert. But now God has commissioned Moses to return. And in this rapid-fire collection of scenes that we find here at the end of chapter 4, what I want to do this morning is draw out three observations regarding the various attitudes and responses that people have towards God's covenant promises. That's really what I want to focus on today. 
That's going to keep us from getting off into all the rabbit trails that we could chase down. What are the various responses and attitudes we see towards God, specifically towards his covenant promises? Well, first of all, in verses 18 through 23, we learn this very important lesson that those who resist God's covenant promises will be judged. They will be judged. Those who resist God's covenant promises will be judged. Look in verse 18. We'll read through 23. Moses, this is after his conversation with God, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's encouraging to see here in the first couple verses that Moses, who just before this point has been resistant, has made excuses, has had protests as to why he shouldn't be the one to go do what God says, it's encouraging to see him now taking steps of obedience. Five times in verses 18 through 21, we see the phrase, go back or return. This is what God has commanded. Go back to Egypt. Go back. And now we see that Moses is actually doing it. First, he has to get the blessing of his father-in-law. The the priest of Midian, Jethro, his father-in-law, was a figure of authority for the whole clan, the community. But he was also Moses' employer, his boss. So he needed to make sure that all the loose ends were tied up. And he wants to leave in good terms because he's not just walking off the job. He's also taking this man's daughter and grandsons with him. So he wants to make sure he has Jethro's blessing and and he gives it. And we see here that Moses is all in. He is taking his family with him. He's not just going on a little work trip where he's going to be gone for two weeks and come back. He's moving. He's going home. Not home to the land where he belonged, but home to the people with whom he belonged. And notice that God gives this word of encouragement as Moses obeys. Verse 19, he says, those seeking your life are dead. As I was studying this this week, I thought, you know, God could have told him this at the burning bush before he started obeying. Go back to Egypt, those who want to take your life are dead. But God didn't tell him that. He waited until Moses has stepped out in faith. And in communicating this, God is doing more than just giving Moses some information to put him at ease. He's showing Moses that what God had said on the mountain was true. Remember, God had said, I will be with you. Moses says, I don't think this plan is going to work. And God says, yes, it will, because I will be with you. God was with Moses. He's removing the obstacles to accomplish his plan. He's preparing the way, and God is still communicating with him. When Moses walked away from the burning bush, that did not end God's communication with this man that he has called and raised up. God would be with him not just on the mountain, but also in Midian and also in Egypt as well. So Moses takes his wife, he takes his kids, 
And in verse 20, he takes one other item. It says, and he took with him the staff of God in his hand. If you remember last week, God had told Moses to throw this staff onto the ground. It would turn into a serpent. He picked it up, and it turned back into the staff again. And this isn't just a cheap parlor trick. It's showing that God is going to be with him, and it is God's power that will do the convincing. It is God's power that will accomplish deliverance. And the presence of this staff with Moses would be a reminder to him, God is with me, and it's God's power that I lean on, not my own. And notice here, it's not called Moses' staff anymore. It's called God's staff. It's the staff of God. It's the symbol of God's power and God's presence. It's the reminder of God's promises to Moses. And this staff, just like the man who carried it, now belongs to God. And it was going to be used, just like Moses was going to be used, to accomplish great things. So Moses is now heading to Egypt. He's leaving the flocks. He's leaving his extended family. He's leaving this peaceful home of 40 years, this peaceful anonymity. He's leaving it behind. And he's on a collision course now with the king of Egypt, with Pharaoh himself. And so God speaks to him and tells him, you have a message for Pharaoh. We find this in verses 21 through 23. If you remember back in chapter 3, God had given Moses his initial instructions. Chapter 3, verse 18. He said that along with the elders of Israel, you shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So Moses has already been told that. Now God gives him some further details. There's three important elements in this message. God says, here's what I want you to say. Here's the words I want you to speak to the king of Egypt. And the first words out of Moses' mouth was to be this announcement in verse 22. The announcement that Israel is my son. Israel is my son. You shall say to Pharaoh, verse 22, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the I am, the self-existent God. Israel is my firstborn son. This announcement would have been a shock to Pharaoh's system. This would have been a startling claim for Moses to make. Because in Egypt, as in many of these pagan nations at the time, the Pharaoh, the king, was thought to be the son of the gods almost a god himself, someone who occupied this position of power and authority, who was imbued with divine power to rule over the people, the son of the gods. And now Pharaoh was to be told that this slave people, the ones that he's been oppressing and even thinning out the herd by killing their male, male babies, he was to be told that this nation collectively is God's son, that they were adopted by God. They belonged to him. They were chosen by him. They were loved by him, that God was loyal to these people, that he was protective of these people, and that he had a purpose for this people, and Pharaoh was in the way. This sonship reveals an intimate relationship, a unique status, a unique position 
a unique place of privilege. And it hints that these people, although they are slaves and they likely had, had no, little to no property rights in Egypt, that they are due an inheritance. God has something for them. That they are the recipients of God's loyal love. Israel is my son. This title would later be applied to David, to Solomon, to the kings of Israel. That God would say, my son, the one whom I have raised up who has a special place of power in my, and authority and an inheritance in my program. And ultimately, this title is applied to Jesus, who is the literal Son of God. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and is the one whom God has exalted over all things. It is to Jesus that the universe and all that is in it belongs. It's his by right of being the firstborn, God's Son. He has all glory and honor and power. And the amazing thing is, as we continue to read the New Testament, that Jesus shares this status and this privilege and even his inheritance with us. That we, through faith in Christ, are called sons and daughters of God. We are children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus has this position, this status, this title, but he is to be the first among many. That we also have the great blessing and privilege of sharing this position of sonship. We are the children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children God. I know this language, children of God, is, is used somewhat flippantly and casually in our culture today. And many people will try to, to underscore the dignity of human life by saying they're all God's children, but listen, that's not true. They're all made in God's image, yes, and there is dignity and worth for every human being, but the ones who are God's children, this is a unique title. It is only those who belong to God through faith in Christ that are part of the family of God. We who believe are co-heirs with Christ, and we relate to God not just as our king, not just as our creator, not just as our Lord and master. We also relate to him as father, and he cares for us as his children. Friends, this relationship of sonship, God's, God as father, we as his children, this is at the very heart of salvation. So this statement where Moses announces to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, it has massive theological significance. And it would have been a shocking message to Pharaoh, but it indicates to us God's purposes for Israel. They're not destined to languish in slavery in Egypt forever. No, God has a great plan for them, and his heart is for them. His heart is for them. Following this announcement that Moses is to make to Pharaoh, secondly, he's to give a command, verse 23. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. You see, for too long, God's son has served the wrong master. And Moses is announcing that, listen, that needs to change. Let him go, that he may serve me. This service really points to worship. Remember chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Let us go that we may, what? Sacrifice to the Lord. 
to serve him in the sense of worshiping him. You see, the father loves his son. He loves his people Israel, and he desires to be loved by them. He desires to be worshiped and served by his children. The father will redeem his son, rescue his son, and in return, the son is to worship and adore his father. This command is paired with a threat. Let my people go, verse 23, let my son go that he may serve me if you refuse to let him go. Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is a threat. Remember, God had said, listen, Pharaoh is not going to listen. He's not going to agree. He's not going to let you go unless he is compelled by my mighty right hand. I will do great signs and wonders. And it's interesting here in this, in this section, you see in verse 21, God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. There's a theme here. We don't have time to fully explore it today. But throughout the book of Exodus, there are many times where it speaks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And about half the time, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And about the other half of the time, it says God hardened his heart. And so people ask, which is it? And the answer is yes. It's, it's, there's mystery to this, but we don't want to take away from either of these. The point is God is sovereign. And also that Pharaoh is stubborn, and he has no interest in letting these slaves go. He has no care for who this God is. As we'll see later, he will say, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And and if I can summarize it this simply, God announces to Moses, I'm going to harden his heart so that Moses won't be surprised when Pharaoh says no, and so that he won't think that Pharaoh's heart is hard, and that means our plan won't work. No, God says, listen, I'm in the driver's seat here. This will all go exactly according to my plan. And God is perfectly just to do this. This man with a hard heart, with a stubborn heart, who wants to harden his heart, God says, I'll give you exactly what you want, and I will double down on that. We'll talk about this more later as we go. But the sovereignty of God is being revealed to Moses so that Moses knows exactly what to expect. But that does not absolve Pharaoh of his responsibilities. If he makes choices to resist the command of God, he is going to reap the consequences. And that's what this threat is. He says, if you don't let my firstborn son go, then I will kill your firstborn son. And this is a foreshadowing, as many of you know, of the final plague. At the end of the plagues, where Pharaoh still won't listen, God will take the life not only of Pharaoh's firstborn, but all the firstborn in Egypt. You say, why would God do that? Does this seem a little bit harsh? Does this seem like overkill, literally? I mean, isn't there another way to convince this guy? Is God overreacting? Well, keep in mind there are elements here of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that covenant we talked about? What did God say to Abraham? Those who dishonor you, I will curse. What had Pharaoh done? He had thrown the sons of Israel into the Nile River and killed them. What is God going to do? He's going to take the life of Pharaoh's firstborn son. The Egyptian oppression of Israel warranted the plagues that fell upon them, including the death of the firstborn. But this is tied even more specifically to the identification of Israel as God's son. You see, the ones that Pharaoh has enslaved, the ones that he's oppressing, they don't belong to him. They belong to God. That means Pharaoh is stealing. The ones that he is oppressing are the prize and joy of God. He loves them, and he will not tolerate this any longer. God is deadly serious. 
about rescuing these people out of Egypt so that they can worship him. Pharaoh's resistance to God's command constitutes competing with God for worship. If God says, let them go that they may worship me, and Pharaoh says no, Pharaoh is in the way of God getting the glory that he deserves. And that's not a place anybody wants to stand. God will tolerate no competition. God is telling Moses to communicate to Pharaoh that he will not be permitted to interfere with the worship that is due to God's name. God's wrath, as demonstrated in the plagues, is justified. And his vengeance will send a message proving that the sonship of Israel is something that is sacred. And the worship that they are to render to their father is essential. And Pharaoh has no right to stand in God's way. So Moses is to announce to Israel and to Pharaoh that the time has come. The time is now. What God said he would do in bringing them out of Egypt, it's now going to happen. And Pharaoh has a choice, doesn't he? He can either cooperate or he can resist. He can humble himself before God or he can have a hard heart. And the point is this. Those who resist God's covenant promises will be judged. God says, I will kill your firstborn. Pharaoh is a model for us of resistance to God and resistance to God's promises, resistance to God's purposes. And what happens to him as we read the rest of Exodus is instructive. This is what happens when you go to war with God. God always wins. He's undefeated. And his judgment is sure on those who resist him. But there's a second response to God's covenant promises we see in this chapter. Those who neglect God's covenant promises will also be judged. So there's those who resist, but what about those who who maybe more passively just neglect God's promises? There's really two kinds of unbelief, isn't there? And maybe we even have some of that represented in this room. There is an active, intentional unbelief that says, no, God, I refuse to believe what you say, and I refuse to do what you say. This is active uh, unbelief. But there's also passive unbelief. There's a kind of unbelief that goes, you know, that's really great for you. And I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any disagreements with that. I'm just not really motivated to personally respond. That is a passive unbelief. But it's still unbelief. And we see an example of that here in verses 24 through 26. Those who neglect God's covenant promises will be judged. Verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place along the way, Moses is en route to Egypt. It says, The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, as I look around the room, I see a couple of you who have had opportunities to preach, some in this church, some in other places. Maybe some of you have had a chance to share like a devotional at a Bible study or to maybe share a challenge to a college group or something like that. This is an honest question. I want you to raise your hand if you ever picked this text for your sermon or for your devotional. Okay, nobody. That's what I thought. Like I said, when you preach verse by verse through the scriptures, you come to texts like this, and you go, what in the world is that about? And how do we talk about that at church? Well, we're going to. Um, 
This is a notoriously tricky passage to interpret. And there's, there's, even grammatically in the Hebrew text, there's several ambiguities. Sometimes it's hard to tell who all the pronouns refer to and what exactly is happening here. And even all the experts, you can go read all the scholars and the commentaries. They're kind of all across the board on what's going on here. But I'm going to give you my best shot at what this means without getting too deep into the weeds. Because I do think that no matter how you solve some of the tricky parts, the point of it is clear and straightforward. So there's a crisis here in verse 24. Moses is under the threat of death by God himself. God has just said, Pharaoh, if you don't listen, then I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh, if you despise my covenant, my promises, my purposes, my plan, I will kill your firstborn son. And then in the very next verse, it says that God is seeking to kill Moses. We're not told how God sought to kill him. We don't know if this is sickness, if he's wrestling with an angel like Jacob did at one point, or if, or if he's being hunted by you know, the, the, the angel of death or something like that. We don't know how God's seeking to put him to death. But we are told why. Apparently, it had something to do with circumcision. And again, to understand what's going on in Exodus, you have to know some things that happen in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 17, remember that first promise of the covenant was later formalized and repeated. And we find God saying to Abraham in Genesis 17.10, he says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you. So that would include Moses and his family. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's what this is about. This isn't about anything health-related. This isn't a med- just purely a medical thing. This is a religious thing. It is a sign of the covenant between me and you. In verse 14 of chapter 17 of Genesis, he says this, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Very simply this, God had commanded circumcision. And those who disobeyed were considered to be outside God's people. They didn't belong. They were to be cut off. They were to be judged. Circumcision was a sign of God's promise. It was a sign of the covenant. And it was the way that the people who had received this promise were to affirm and embrace it, to say, I believe that. If you think about even a wedding ceremony, you have vows, the I do's. This is the way that Israel was to say, I do, to God's promise to love them and bless them. And they were to say, yes, we receive that, and we agree, and we belong to you, and we believe your word. They weren't the only ones who practiced circumcision. The Midianites did. The Egyptians practiced a partial form of circumcision. But Israel's circumcision was infused with significance. It was a sign of God's covenant with them. It made them unique. And here's what that means. To reject the sign of the covenant was to reject the God who gave the sign. To refuse to perform what God had commanded was to make the choice to step outside of his grace. To say, I don't care about those promises. I don't need that. And it meant that you would be cut off. There's a divine pun that's intended there. Cut off from the people of God. You'd be considered outside God's promise, outside the covenant. And apparently Moses, who was an Israelite, had neglected this sign within the context of his own family. He had not circumcised his son. 
Moses had two sons, Gershom and then later Eliezer. This is probably the younger son, Eliezer. And this was a critical failure. How can Moses bank on God's faithfulness to his covenant if Moses himself is not faithful to the covenant? How can, God lead God, how can Moses lead God's people if he won't lead his own family? It seems that Moses has been negligent. He does not take circumcision very seriously. But here's the thing, God does. God is deadly serious about the sign of the covenant. It is a matter of life and death. So that's the crisis in verse 24. At a lodging place along the way, whether it's an oasis or a campsite or something, the Lord, Yahweh, this is all capitals here. This is the God who spoke to Moses from the bush, met him and sought to put him to death. Thankfully for Moses, for the children of Israel, and for us, there's an intervention here by Moses' wife, Zipporah. Verse 25 explains to us what she did. She recognizes what's going on, and his wife, Zipporah, knows what is lacking, and she takes decisive action to save Moses' life. And here's the key. She is acting in faith. That's what we need to understand. She's acting in faith. Her actions and her words show that she believes in the promise. Her faith is evidenced, like faith always is, by her obedience to God's commands. There's really two ways to sort of take Zipporah's actions and words in this verse. Some people will read this as sort of an angry, negative outburst, that she's disgusted with her husband's failure and with the whole process in general. I think the NASB translates the verb touched his feet with, you know, threw at his feet. I don't think that's the best translation. I, I think touched is better, and I'll share why. But that's, that's one way you can take her actions, that she's angry. Moses, you're a failure. I guess I have to do your dirty work for you, and this whole thing is just gross to me. That's one way you can take it. Or you can take it as positive. You can also read this text as showing that Zipporah, Moses' wife, is stepping in to perform a ceremonial ritual, and that her Actions and her words are carefully calculated. She's being careful to do each step in the appropriate way to make sure that God is pleased and that her husband's life is spared. Now, e- either way that you take it, either one is permissible, and it- it's hard to tell, but neither approach will change the bottom line. So I, I take this in more of the positive way. So I'm going to walk through that from that perspective. Let's look at what she did. What was her action? Verse 25, she performs the ritual. She performs the ritual. It says she takes a flint. This is a flint knife, okay? Now, flint is a stone that you can chip, and, sh- and it has sharpened edges where it breaks. And it's been used around the world by various cultures at different times to make different tools and implements. Now, at this point in time, flint wasn't the only material available to them, and it wasn't the best one. They had metal. So was this the best tool for the job? I think the fact that she takes a flint shows that this is a ceremonial tool. It's a special knife. This isn't like something out of the toolbox that's a utility instrument. It was sacred. It was meant specifically for this ritual. So this, I think, shows that she is performing a ceremony. She's keeping the tradition. This tool was for one thing and one thing only. So she performs the deed with the flint, and then it says she touches Moses' feet to mark him with blood. And again, I like the, the image here of touching his feet rather than throwing. I don't think she's angry. I think she's doing something intentional. And the question to us, this sounds very strange. Why would she do this? Why would she touch Moses' feet? 
Well, just like the knife is a ceremonial tool, this is a ceremonial action. Moses, get this, this is important. Moses is now marked with the blood. This is visual proof on Moses' person that the deed has been done, that the necessary step has been carried out, that this family is faithful to the covenant, that this family does belong to God. Later on in Egypt, the doorposts would be smeared with blood as well, wouldn't they? To show that this household believes. This household is in obedience to God. This household is trusting in his promise, and the angel of death would pass over. So too, I think in this situation, Moses is now marked with the blood, showing faithfulness to God's instructions. And then we see her speech in verse 25. She calls him a bridegroom of blood. And again, I take this a positive statement. This is the verbal aspect of the ceremony. She's doing the things that are supposed to be done and being careful to say all the things that need to be done. This is the formal announcement that it is finished. I think she's saying, yes, you're a Hebrew and I'm a Midianite, but we are one flesh and we belong together to God's covenant people. We are united under his promise. We are marked by the blood. And in saying this, she completes the ritual and shows their faith and dedication to the Lord. And God relents. What he expected from them has now been performed. So Moses' life is spared. Zipporah's faith in action has diverted God's wrath. And I think it's interesting here, once again, Moses has been rescued by a woman. Remember at first it was his mother who would not give him up to be killed. And then it was the daughter of Pharaoh who took him out of the weeds in the Nile River and said, I'm going to keep him. And then it was his sister Miriam who said, would you like me to find a nurse to help you? And brought him back to his own mother. All along, we've seen God use these women to save his life. And once again, he saved, this time by his own wife. So what do we make of all this? What's the point? Why is this story included in the text? Because it seems kind of strange and maybe gross and foreign to some of our ears. So what's the point? Well, remember this. Who's the author of this book? Who's writing Exodus? It's Moses. It's Moses. So he's telling yet another story about his own failures. I mean, Zippor is very clearly the hero here, and Moses is the failure. And he's telling us this about himself, telling us about his imperfections. Why? Listen. It is essential that God gets the glory for the exodus, not Moses. It is essential we understand that it is God's power that is decisive. And that God will use weak and imperfect people, failures like Moses, failures like me, failures like you. That's how God works. Yet it is also essential that God's people recognize the importance of belonging to God's covenant. Here's the question. Are you in or are you out? Which side of God's wrath are you on? Do you belong? Because God offers us promises of salvation. But what is your attitude towards God's promises? What is your attitude towards the provision that God has made? If you're dismissive of God's offer of salvation... If you're content to live outside his covenant, you do so at your own peril. We can learn from Moses' mistakes, and we dare not repeat them. But it's also important here that God's people see the mercy of God. Even in this story, we see God's mercy. God is patient. Yeah, Moses blew it. 
But God is prepared to forgive. God is ready and willing to turn aside his wrath, even at the last moment, if there is evidence of repentance and faith. Zipporah's actions on Moses' behalf diverted the wrath of God. Hers was an act of faith. She showed she believed in the promise. She trusted God's words to be true. And she knew that if she did this, it would appease the Lord. Her faith was expressed in obedience. So those who resist God's covenant promises will be judged. That's what Pharaoh shows us. Those who neglect God's covenant promises are also in danger of judgment. We learn that from Moses' failure here. And then finally, we learn that those who embrace God's covenant promises will worship. Look in verse 27 through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They believed and they worshipped. Remember, Moses had been concerned that no one would listen to him if he went back to Egypt that the people would not believe that God had actually spoken to him. But what happened was the exact opposite. Moses' fears were unfounded, and exactly what God said would happen, happened. First of all, Aaron, as predicted, receives the message and joins with Moses. Remember, God had told Moses at the bush, Aaron is already on his way to meet you. And here we have a little bit of a flashback that, that God had spoken to Aaron. Aaron wasn't just sort of accidentally going to bump into Moses. God has spoken, and the NIV helpfully translates this verb in verse 27, the Lord had said to Moses, showing us this is a flashback. The grammar indicates that. Um, So this is God doing what he said he would do. He brings Aaron along, and when Aaron hears everything that God said to Moses and he, he learns about the signs, he's all in. He's all in. In the next breath, in verse 28, he's in lockstep with Moses. He believes And he's on board, and together they go back to Egypt. And Aaron was someone who had credibility. Aaron was somebody who may even have been one of the elders himself. So he's going to get Moses a hearing, verse 29. And that's what happens. We're not told much about Moses' return to Egypt, his arrival. He gets right to the point and says, listen, he gives the signs and speaks the words to the people, and they believe, and they worship. When they heard, verse 31, that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that God had come down and spoken to Moses, and that he had seen their afflictions, that God knew, and God cared, and God was going to act, what did they do? They bowed their heads and worshiped. This is significant. Their response to the covenant promises of God, the actions that God is performing, the words that God is speaking, their response is significant. Notice that they bow. They are in awe that this is going to happen. They're showing deep gratitude. Their 400 years in Egypt is about to come to a close. But they're not bowing to Moses, are they? They're bowing to God. They're not worshiping Moses. They're worshiping the God that Moses represents. They're they're believing not just Moses. They're believing in God, the God who has visited them and revealed his purposes and plans to them. And this worship shows that they are trusting 
in this God for their rescue, for their salvation. They're embracing the promises, all of them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had spoken to Moses, is now their God as well. And they see themselves as his people. They offer him worship. This God related to them as sons, so now they relate to him as their father. You see, faith in God's promise does lead to obedience. We see that with Zipporah. But it leads ultimately to worship. And that's what's modeled for us here by the children of Israel. And friends, this is always the pattern of salvation. God saved you if you're a Christian today. You've been born again so that you would worship him. This is the pattern. And this initial moment of worship here in Egypt, the people bow and they worship, it anticipates God's plan to gather them together at Sinai and to worship him on that mountain. And it's the same with us today. God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. He rescues us from slavery to sin. He adopts us into his family. He calls us sons and daughters. He invites us into the joyful privilege of worship. So what do we do? We bow in awe with gratitude and fear and joy, and we worship in humility before the God who has seen our need. The fact that we are sinful people, separated from him, destined for judgment. God has seen us and he has visited us. He sent his own son to come to earth, to shed his blood so that we could be marked as belonging, so that we could be forgiven, so that our failures could be cleansed. He sent Jesus to redeem us. So we worship him today, don't we? In anticipation of eternity, God's purpose is to gather us not at Sinai, but at Mount Zion, the eternal mountain, Jerusalem, the city of God, and we will be there to worship our Lord forever in his very presence. The great I am is our Father, and those who have been redeemed are to bow and worship. That's the right response to the covenant promises of God, to the good news that is offered, that God is a Savior and a Redeemer, and he is redeeming people through Faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The covenant with Abraham was good news for God's people in that day. Blessing from God, rescue by God. But this covenant promise takes shape and is further explained, isn't it, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's how we can be rescued from our slavery. Slavery to sin. If you don't know Jesus today, if you're not born again, you are a slave. You cannot say no to your flesh and your sin nature. You don't have the power. But God is able to rescue you from slavery to sin. It comes through the gospel. It comes through Christ. It's only through Jesus that you can be forgiven of your guilt and your shame can be removed. What the New Testament talks about as a spiritual circumcision takes place. Your sin is cut off and removed from you. There's this radical procedure and change that makes you new and makes you different. And as that takes place, we are restored to our Heavenly Father. We relate to Him as Father and He to us as His sons. But listen, only those who belong to God's family experience this salvation. Only those who are marked by the blood of Christ can escape God's wrath. It is through faith in Christ alone that we can belong to the new covenant people and receive God's promises of eternal life. There's three responses to this news, to this good news. This gospel. And we've seen them modeled here. You can resist it. You can neglect it. 
or you can embrace it by faith and worship Christ. Let me ask, which one describes you? Which one describes you? Do you have something in common with Pharaoh? A hard heart, stubbornness. You hear what God is saying, but you just flatly reject it. Does that describe you? Let me warn you that that path only leads to judgment. But perhaps you're more like Moses, and you've simply been dismissive of God's word. You're just not that interested in it. You think that, listen, J.D., you and this church, you guys are just making way too big a deal about this. Maybe you've procrastinated. You've said, you know, I think that's good and that's true, but I'll do that later. Why is it that you've not fully embraced the good news of the gospel? Don't neglect the necessity of faith and repentance because, friend, this too leads to judgment. The good news is that God is willing and ready to save, to forgive, to spare you, and to pour out his grace upon you. But there has to be a response on your part to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, to bow the knee to him as Lord, as your Lord. Do not neglect this offer of good news, what God is doing in saving people today. The good news for you today is that you still have time. You're able to hear my voice. You're able to hear God's word. So don't harden your heart, but humble yourself before the Lord today. Allow him to change you, to touch you with the blood of Christ, to set you apart as his own and adopt you into his family. For those of you who believe, will you today, like the people of Israel, embrace all of God's promises by faith? And will you bow and worship? Because those who believe, those who trust in the promise that salvation has come to us in the person of Christ, we will do no less than worship our Savior. That's the right response and the one that God desires today. So let's respond to him that way this morning. Father, we read through your word today and we are thankful that you are a God who saves. Thankful that though we often have hard hearts, though we have failed and neglected to do what we ought, You are a God of mercy who is slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. And you are eager to forgive and to cleanse and to restore and to renew. God, I pray that you would soften hard hearts this morning. And that those who might be spiritually anemic, apathetic, neglectful, I pray that they would be awakened. That they would see the seriousness of embracing Christ and all that he is for us. Lord, I pray that they would not delay, they would not procrastinate, that they would not neglect to deal with this matter of life and death, that they would be prepared because one day, Lord, we know that we all will die and we will stand before you at the judgment. And what will matter in that day is how we responded to your offer of salvation, the message of Christ. Did we neglect, did we reject, or did we trust and obey? I pray, Lord, that you would create faith in weak hearts today you would save sinners. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who have received your very great and precious promises, Lord, help us to worship you and give you the glory that you deserve with hearts full of joy and gratitude. We pray this in your name. Amen.